episode 16 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Michelle Scali, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. And I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the CC. So, Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? Today we have our Editor-in-Chief, Lisa Henderson, and European Editor, Julian Upton, back on the podcast to speak a little bit about specialty pharma, which happened to be the focus of our September issue. I think the conversation was really good. Uh, As usual, we jump around a little bit, Um, but our listeners will really be able to learn some of the struggles facing the specialty pharma industry these days. Stay tuned for the interview after this quick break. Keeping up with our podcast episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, among other apps. But did you know we also have a pretty cool social media presence? Our social media expert, Lisa Higgins, keeps our readers and listeners up to date on latest articles, podcast episodes, and industry trends. We'd love to interact with you and hear what you have to say about our podcast, article content, and magazine through our Twitter at FarmExec, our YouTube channel at FarmExec, and our Instagram at FarmExecutive. And then, of course, you can always find us at farmexec.com. Hey, listeners. Today we're welcoming back our editor-in-chief, Lisa Henderson, and European editor, Julian Upton, to the podcast. We're pretty excited to share with you some behind-the-scenes understanding of our content for the September issue. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Good morning. So our September (laughs) issue was on specialty pharma. And we each tackled a different part of the subject and decided it would be a good podcast to have since we all, I think, learned a lot about specialty pharma. Um, So I'm going to start. Julian, tell us a little bit about what you wrote about. Yeah, I uh, tried to look into um, some of the marketing challenges uh, associated with specialty marketing and uh, specialty drugs, sorry. You know, so I was kind of drawn in the direction of where are we with the – big data now and how how companies are using that to target and you know go through segmentation th- uh, processes and how are they you know beginning to be able to get all that data together because obviously big data has been a, a thing for a long time so and it's very important in specialty of course because it's it's a lot more complicated process actually get, getting to know who the patient is so there was that and then also I talked a little bit also about where, what's the role of the rep now uh, in specialty What's the role uh, of the rep going forward, especially when all the data and AI um, methods become more sophisticated? That's very interesting, and I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about that. But before we get there, Lisa, tell us a little bit about what you wrote about in Asia. So I had attended um, the Viva Systems Commercial uh, Medical Summit in May, and from there, their keynote included the CEO of Bar Therapeutic and the CEO of Atsuka in uh, their commercial development here in New Jersey. So Ben Carson and um, Jeff Morazzo, whose name I consistently spell incorrectly. I'm sorry, Jeff, if you're listening, but the editors caught it. So anyway, um, so they had presented to the audience their challenges with each of their drugs. So to just Quickly, we know Luxerna is a—it's the first approved gene therapy. It literally 
um, had very, very positive results three years out for people with one variant of blindness. It's a one-time therapy, and it's injected in the eye directly, one, for, um, one dose for each eye by a physician. And then for Atsuka, Dr. Carson tackled the the challenges of putting Abilify, their antipsychotic medicine, which has been on the market and already approved, along with Proteus's event ingestible event monitor with that drug to help keep track of medical adherence as well as you know your successes with the drug and the times you're taking it and how your body's reacting via the ingestible monitor which bounces into a sensor on a, on your body. So there are two totally different types of specialty medications when you think about it, but they're very different. Um, I think the most challenging thing around this issue was actually to define what a specialty product is. And, you know, traditionally it it's considered high cost, injectable usually, and um, it, it requires cold chain supply. But when you think about the supply chain in regard to um, both Luxterna and Abilify, they both chose different launch models for the chain. So bottom line, I think we all said it when we were discussing this in our meetings, was drug development's literally all getting specialty. I mean, yeah, you could say diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and maybe high blood pressure and everything, you know, those are pretty standard of care, we have everything there for those conditions, but, and they're, you know, high utilization, but everything's going toward that specialized manner. So we have an article on what happens with low-cost medications get into the specialty pharmacy channel because the specialty pharmacy aspect is um, one that um, manufacturers, the pharma companies, need to consider when they're manufacturing these drugs. You know, how are we going to distribute it? Do we want a specialty pharmacy? Do we want a hub to help handle some of these issues? Um, how are we going to reimburse? How are we going to price? I mean, there's just a lot more going on out there that when you get into these drugs that are very targeted and very specific that really lend challenges. That's what I found with my article. Um, and actually, just really quick, Dr. Carson is actually supposed to be a guest on the podcast um, either in, in oh, over great. the next few months. Yeah, we've been talking to him, and he's really excited about it. Um, so that's just kind of a side note for our listeners. And that was actually a good lead-in because I know, Lisa, I have a lot of – I kind of wrote about sort of the general specialty farmer and a lot of the stuff that you just talked about. Um, and – it was really interesting because I kept having problems with that. We kind of went into it thinking that the delivery of the yeah. drug therapies were going to be the problem, and there was going to be problems around temperature sensitivity and all of this. And actually, that's not what we found. We found that those solutions are really there already. The technology has the technology in logistics has sort of caught up to the technology of the science. But right. the science just keeps changing so fast. And I think that was kind of the most interesting thing for me to learn with all of this um, is that some of those things we thought were problems were not anymore. Um, but it was also interesting, and I think you mentioned this 
just before, when you ask someone the definition of specialty pharma now, they're pretty much like, well, everyone has a different definition. And it's not so rare anymore. I mean, that's what I found was, was interesting as well. I actually spoke to the president of the National Association of Specialty Pharma, and she actually said that specialty pharma will be basically the new pharmacy. As more drugs are developed and approved by the FDA, specialty drugs will be the focus, and it's just going to become the norm. Right. And so Kristen and I attended um, a reimbursement conference held by our sister company, you know, CBI, and in Philadelphia. It was excellent. It was really informative. But I have to say that, you know, if you look at the the larger health care system and, you know, so we have the whole CVS and the Aetna and the this. Well, each of them have a specialty pharmacy. And, Kristen, remember uh, the gentleman, I forget if he's from – I forget where he's from. I should check that out. But he um, – you know, described this area that everybody, the the market dynamics in specialty pharmacy, everybody wants to be in it, but nobody knows what it is. Like, literally, like, everybody just is there, but then they're not exactly sure how to define it anymore. So I just, you know, to your point, we're not the only ones struggling with this definition. I think the whole market is going through this upheaval. And then if you look to leaders like Jeff Morazzo at, um, at Spark Therapeutics, and he's from outside of, pharma and he literally is toppling the supply chain on its head you know they're selling those drugs directly to the payer and then the payer gets it to a doctor to inject it into the patient so you know you don't need a pharmacy in that situation so what does that mean and then when you get into your cell therapies with CAR T you know obviously there's a cold chain logistics aspect that you said but they have that down pat the other part of that is patient has to be in the hospital I think that Jeff's, uh, Jeff Morata's main point is that our healthcare system, our reimbursement system, our distribution system literally is built for 30 years ago. And it's it's going to require a lot of examination and a lot of changes. So It's so interesting you say that because when I was at the um, Assembly Specialty Conference, uh, Specialty Pharma Summit in April in Vegas, yeah. that was something that kept coming up as well. And in the article, you'll see one of the major points they kept saying was the political climate that impacts regulations are just changing so fast, but they're still not changing almost fast enough um, right. to go along with this either. And the fact that it's so crazy these days, it's very hard to plan because one day people are saying one thing and have one sort of agenda, and then a month later all of that has changed. So right. it's really tough for pharmaceutical companies and pretty much everyone else in this industry to really get a handle on all of this as well. Yeah, they have to make a lot of decisions way before product launch. You know, they can't be thinking through this stuff. And and none of these guys are. You know, obviously a lot of them, you know, higher up, they scale up, you know, 18 to 24 months before the launch even before they have approval, because they have to know what they're going to do. Are they going to do the specialty pharmacy? Are they going to have a hub? How are the patients going to be reimbursed, or how are they going to get money um, for their prescriptions, you know? And then throw in that mix with the PBMs and the, uh, you know, and the health plans and all the, the rebate issues coming on right now. It's it's just really problematic. 
Uh, it's interesting, though. We did just receive an article I'm very excited about from MIT, Optum, National Pharmaceutical Council, and we also have a market access consultant in Philadelphia. And they just submitted an article called Improving Management of Gene Cell Therapies, and they offer an option of a new insurance model, like the orphan reinsurer and benefit manager. So it's really interesting. It'll be online first. You know, it's just new ways to start looking at this future, the whole thing, the challenge that everybody's having. So I'm excited about that. So, Julian, tell us a little bit about what you found with the marketing challenges. I, I spoke to um, a few people, and, some, and actually one was on more on the uh, orphan side. So I guess there is obviously a clear division between orphan and primary care. So, you know, the specialty sort of spans the broad bit in between. Uh, and it kind of just, but the, the orphan side of it brought home some of the um, some of the challenges that specialty marketers had. You know, we took dealing with very limited populations. It's not like primary care where you can go with, after people with broad strokes. You can go after physicians with broad strokes. You can sell things or you can try and sell things to physicians um, in a short period of, a short meeting, if you like. So, um, I mean, he was talking about how you know there may only be 300 doctors in some categories, and the problem, of course, is how are you going to help target those, and how do you use the data? And of course, big data has been around for as long as we've been, <laughs> we've been talking about, pretty much as long as we've been talking about pharma amongst ourselves. And so, there's never been a problem having access to data, certainly for the last 10, 15 years. But things are getting much more sophisticated now. Obviously, there's a lot more data coming in, and you know, claims data and adherence data, customer insights, real-time data. And the challenge has been how to actually stitch that together, how to actually um, make sense of it. And that's something that specialty has definitely had to deal with, specialty pharma, piecing the data together, matching it around an HCB, HCP or or care provider and target population. So uh, people I talked to said that this is starting to happen because especially companies um, are starting to process the data in their own in their own centers for data competence and having the right people analyze the data. Or, or if they're not doing that, then they can outsource to these uh, new custom-built data warehouses. I mean, we're talking... I mean, the reason I'm, uh, you know, mentioning the word data so much is because we're now talking data oceans is what one... One uh, person said to me, "It's not—it's not, it's not like big data anymore. It's a—it's an ocean of data. So, with all that stuff, how do you get smart about it? How do you ask the right questions of the data? How do you use it to target the the people that you you want to target? So, this is starting to happen. Um, data warehouses are sort of, you know, for example, in the cloud where you, you know, you, they can just take all your data and, you know, try and." order it and make it into some sort of shape and get, get the responses that you need. But um, I think some of the things you mentioned uh, just then about the changing market, depending on your treatment, you know, there's, there's questions like velocity of the data. And uh, I never thought about this before, but, it's, you know, if your data is two months old, three months old, it could already be out of date. So it's like some of this data has a, has a, a short uh, shelf life. If you've got a product that's new to market, uh, and your data is pretty old. You know, you could be you, you could be just missing you know missing a trick because these are things to consider with uh, with you know being smart about about all the data that's coming in. So I think it's a it's a challenge. But I think um, you know with with AI becoming more sophisticated, there was a lot of optimism about how you know 
farmer and especially farmer is going to get on top of this. And, and one person I spoke to said that um, she predicts, you know, going to be ultra-targeted messaging to, uh, you know, like Amazon. We're taking a leaf out of the Amazon book and, uh, you know, ultra-targeting your uh, your messages and everything's becoming personalized, but it will actually become more meaningfully personalized than it is today. That's what I talk about a, a little bit. And um, and I think, you know, we're still – it actually – the actual result was that we're still in a kind of early days in terms in terms of applying AI and predictive modeling and all that to all this data, which sounds crazy because we've all been talking about it for so long. But um, I think the potential is, is is only just, you know, starting to happen. It's so interesting um, with yeah. the data because when I was at Assemblia, I would say, I'm going to say like at least 50% of the exhibit halls Exhibitors were data companies, and yeah, uh, yeah um, our sales director Bill Campbell and I, when we were walking it, we were just like, "What do all these data companies do? I mean, like, how many different things can you do with data?" And but that that is really true. I mean, there's and there's so many different options out there of things that you can do with this. So it's it's really interesting. I have a point when you're done, Michelle. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, you said about the data ocean. It's funny because Dr. Carson always, when I heard him speak, I don't know if you said this when you heard him speak, but he kept calling it the data tsunami. Um, and we yeah. actually yeah. did yeah. the yeah. market. <laughs> we should put no, it on he did, and, I, and sell it. <laughs> I was going to – I didn't put it in the article, in the uh, write-up, you know, that was based on the um, transcript from the conference, but the major issues where the FDA had around the Abilify with the um, – Adjustable monitor was around well two things it was around usability are people with a mental illness capable of using mm-hmm. a complicated you know device that comes like a phone you know it looks like a smartphone or whatever but obviously so they proved that was fine but Dr. Carson said they struggle with the data issue like it that sensor can collect so much data and yeah. What do we do with that data? And the patient has the opportunity to opt out of the data collection or handing it over to their caregiver if they're not comfortable or their physician. So, you know, again, it gets to – it may not be all about those um, higher-level issues, about the AI and the this, but if you're getting all this data, like, and how are you going to use it? You have to know how you know how you're going to use it. And he yeah. said, you know, they spoke with ethics comp- people and they spoke, you know, with a lot of physicians about how they felt about you know collecting so much data. So it's yeah. interesting, you know. It's, I think it's definitely something a about the, the the actual technology itself, though, is that as that becomes more sophisticated as well, you know, that helps the process in yeah. that that can also help decipher what the data means before it's you know before it just sends the data, I guess. Um, right. Uh, we, I guess we all know that with, like, I keep mentioning Amazon, Amazon, but, you know, the kind of things that, you know, that they've got going with um, with Alexa and all that, it's, um, it, Pharma has its eye on, <laughs> on, on, looking, on, on looking at that and, um, you know, and how sophisticated this, and how easy and how user-friendly these devices can become, you know. Um, you're just saying that, you know, like a small phone could be, could be, quite difficult to some people but if it's something that's completely passively you know doesn't require any real active engagement with just collects data you know something that's a sensor or whatever um it, it does make it i guess it's, you know gets easier and easier at least for the user and um hopefully for whoever's receiving that data 
when you were talking about that, it kind of reminded me um, of actually our last podcast because we had a gentleman named Corian who is actually with Italia Health, and he has Nebu, which is a robot that collects data um, and really just sits on your counter, could sit anywhere, um, and it interacts with the patient, so it makes it really easy on the patient. But one of the problems, you, you were talking about the data, and actually this is like the Dr. Carson podcast, and it's not even on yet. Um, he was saying was the problem, too, is that these data tech companies that are not in pharma, they can collect all of this data and get all of these specialized information, but then they're pretty much almost ahead of pharma, and pharma doesn't know what to yeah. do with it because of all the regulations in pharma. So actually one of the things we're going to be talking to him about is how does an industry like pharma, where it's very traditional, takes a while to get things done, there's so many regulations, work with an outside company that's really very data-driven? I mean, he's yeah, yeah. I don't know if he told this story. Um, well, Lisa, Lisa mentioned Viva, and of course, uh, and I talked to them, and, and they're, you know, I guess they used, they work with pharma, they work with healthcare, so uh, there are these companies, and McKesson as well, that, that work, you know, that, that know these pharma problems. But as for you, you know, your walk around the, the, the exhibition hall, and whether all those companies are just, um, are just pharma-focused or healthcare-focused is, is, is a different matter, but I think you've got to be careful in choosing your company, I suppose, and uh, make sure you know people who know how to deal with the, the regulations and the, and, the, and the challenges that this particular industry is, is facing. Yeah, and even if they do understand those challenges, you know, she was telling the story, Dr. Carson, of how they would come back to him, like they would have a meeting, and they'd be like, oh, we have this new thing we can do. And it's like, oh, my God, we just got, you know, disapproved. We need to, you know, just slow down a little bit almost with some of, with some of this. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm sure when we look in the November issue for the pipeline, you know, we'll have a number of updates, not on, um, you know, launches, but actually of drugs in the pipeline and those different specialties that, you know, are up and coming. And also regarding, you know, the data, the data that you strictly need in a clinical trial, you know, that's pretty basic. It's not ba I mean, they have that process down pat, you know, they know how to get the data, they know the endpoints. Mm -hmm. You still, you know, there's still the issue that maybe you're collecting too much data in the clinical trial. What do you do with it? But the other side of this point is that, um, you know, the um, payers, the health plans, are asking for information earlier, and FDA does have a guidance on that now for how manufacturers can speak to the health plans about their drugs before they're approved so that the payers aren't taken by surprise, you know, about either costs or outcomes. You know, and we know that a lot of this data from clinical trials, of course, isn't about real world. You know, it's about what happened in the trial, and it's obviously yeah. good. Yeah. It's approved. But, you know, they want this information earlier before they start thinking about, um, pay well, yeah, paying for it. And then, you know, then you have the situations like over in the U.K., Julian, you know, where they might have the outcomes data, but it might take a couple of years before they think there's really a difference with the data, you know, if they're going to decide to pay for it or not, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This has been a really great conversation, and I hope our listeners found it interesting. I know I learned some things, too, and we've been talking about this for months, so. Yeah. And we will continue talking about it because it's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, hopefully, so, yeah, I hope people understand better. Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, thank you guys for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. This is Lisa Henderson, Editorial Director of Pharmaceutical Executive, with a leadership tip for this episode of our podcast. So my tip is, Um, around the person, whoever the person is that said to surround yourself with people smarter than you, that's my best leadership tip. Even if you are the leader, you don't know or you shouldn't know the best way to do everything. You need to rely on your colleagues, your mentors, and your direct reports to give you the information. And from that, as a leader, you take the salient points and make sure that they're executed. In the execution phase, I think the key is to keep things simple, let others do what they do best. The leader's role is to make sure everyone has the right tools to do their best work and make sure they know what the goal of that work is. So you just want to focus and don't wander off the path, don't over-explain, and definitely don't ever be negative. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.